Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Emperor Nero, one of the most infamous figures of antiquity. But did the early Christians associate Nero with the Antichrist mentioned in the New Testament, particularly the beast in Revelations? Joining me to sort the fact from the fiction is Shushma Malik. Shushma is a professor from the University of Roehampton and she has recently written a book all about Nero's portrayal as the Antichrist in Christian literature and indeed throughout history. And this was a fascinating chat. We first of all look at Nero's relationship with the Christians and then we explore how this association with the Antichrist was invented by 3rd, 4th and 5th century Christian writers. And then we go on to the 18th and 19th centuries where this association was revived and how it spilled over into the 20th century and a famous Hollywood production called Quo Vadis. Here's Shushma. Shushma, it is great to have you on the show. Great to see you again. Thank you. It's lovely to see you as well. Now, this, pardon the pun, is one hell of a topic. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it doesn't get much more apocalyptic. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Nero and the Antichrist, this association, you would argue this was a link that was invented later and then also later, later revived. Yes, yes, exactly. So I think this is a idea about Nero that really came to being fully fledged in about the third century AD. So as Ro the Roman Empire was sort of getting towards um, its later period after the what we would call the heyday of sort of the second century. And then revived, like you say, in the 19th century, when we start to find the idea of Nero as the Antichrist popping up in, well, French and British literature, actually, in particular, as a way of understanding the Antichrist that was going against kind of anti-papal rhetoric that was quite prevalent at the time in the mid-19th century. Wow. So let's have a talk first about Nero and the Christians during his reign. So in the, in the mid-first century AD, what is the Christian population in Rome? How significant are they at this time? So we don't have any concrete sort of numbers, unfortunately. That's, as you know, true of ancient history generally. But um, we know that there was a population in Rome. So, for example, um, Paul, in, in his letters, writes to the Romans. Um, included in the Bible is Paul's letters to the Romans. So we have an idea that there was a congregation, if you like, and don't think of this as sort of a physical church building where people could go to congregate. It's more a, a group at this point of Christians in Rome. 
we certainly know that the bigger populations of Christians were in the East. So, of course, Christianity started in the East, in Judea. So there were some in the West um, and in Rome at this point, but we're not talking about a great number in the first century when Nero is reigning. So they're quite a small group at this time, we can presume. And how do the Romans in Rome at this time, how do they consider the Christians? So we don't really have any contemporary evidence. By that I mean we don't have any accounts from the mid-first century of people talking about, uh, of, of you know, pagan Romans, as it were, talking about what they thought about the Christians or, or those sorts of things. What we do have is the testimony of later Romans, so mid-second century, the 130s-ish, 120s, 130s-ish um, AD. And that's mainly a Roman historian named Tacitus. And this is how we know about what Nero did with the Christians as well, um, because Tacitus writes about uh, Christians being in Rome in the mid-first century AD under Nero, and that people thought of these Christians as a superstition, basically. So you had the religion of Rome uh, in Latin religio, um, so that was your Roman cults and, you know, uh, sacrifices, the festival calendar, all of those sorts of things. But then you also had a superstitio. The superstitio or superstition was Christianity because it came from the East and also um, because it didn't want to sit within religio. It didn't want to kind of be another cult that you could practice worship of alongside other cults. The idea of, of having... Um, just one cult uh, for it being, you know, just one um, one religion that you followed was not particularly conducive to how the Romans thought of religion at this point. So Christianity sat outside of this, and and that's true of Judaism as well. Judaism sat outside of it, but I think perhaps one of the differences at this point is that Judaism was very happy to sit outside of it within small communities, doing what they wanted to do, whereas Christianity was more concerned particularly later on, um, trying to get people to follow Christianity. Um, so conversion was more of a Christian attribute than, you know, we would necessarily think of as tied to the, the Jewish sect. So there's sort of suspicion about, about Christians, um, according to Tacitus at this time, and certainly by his time in the mid-second century, um, early to mid-second century, that superstition we see elsewhere as well. So one of his friends is a Roman politician um, named Pliny, Pliny the Younger, and he is made governor of a province in the east called Bithynia. And when he goes over to Bithynia, he writes a letter back to the then Emperor Trajan saying, I've come across this group of Christians and I'm not quite sure what to do with them. Um, you know, whether them practicing Christianity is enough to bring legal action against them and, you know, whether that's not enough or, or whether the fact that they're, you know, causing riots or causing problems, should I be, what should I be doing, basically? So these questions are, are, are coming up at this point, and Trajan's response is perhaps quite a good one. It's sort of, uh, don't ask, don't tell. Um, if they're not bothering anyone and no one's complaining, leave them alone. If people start complaining, then, you know, we can think of doing something on them for the grounds of breaking the peace, that kind of thing. That's interesting. But so 50 years earlier, there are still also question marks appearing about what the Christians are, about how they can fit into Roman society emerging in Rome? Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, so there's understandings and misunderstandings about this cult. So um, Tacitus recognises them as a sort of offshoot of Judaism, as having some connection to Judaism, which does 
demonstrate an understanding, um, certainly at least, but he, he is also not quite sure where they fit and, and, and what they're doing. But he does say that, that, you know, other Romans don't particularly like them. They're, they're kind of uh, people who are a community in and of themselves and, and that, that, you know, it's not very sociable. <laughs> well, when do we first hear about Nero coming into contact with his community within itself? Well, that's it. It's not until the second century that we come across this. So it's Tacitus, in fact, is our earliest source for Nero um, and the Christians. There are three kind of historical biographies that we still have of Nero. And there would have been others. It's just unfortunately they don't survive. So Tacitus was writing, like I say, in sort of the early to mid second century AD under the emperor Trajan, probably, and, and perhaps a bit earlier. Similarly, a rough contemporary of his was a biographer named Suetonius. And then we have another source from a bit later called Cassius Dio, who's writing in the late second century, so about 50, 60 years later under the Emperor Commodus and afterwards. So Tacitus mentions that, well, Tacitus is our best account for what happened with Nero and the Christians. By best, I mean the longest <laughs> account um, of what happened with Nero and the Christians. Um, Suetonius mentions it very briefly. All he says is during Nero's reign, there was a group called Christians in Rome and Nero punished them. And this was a good thing that Nero did. Suetonius <laughs> is not normally a big fan of Nero, but uh, at the beginning of his biography, he sort of lists some, some good things that Nero did. And that's one of them that he punished the Christians. He doesn't say he killed them but he does say he punished them. We can infer from that what we would like. And we generally tend to infer from it that there was you know, a punishment of death because of the account of Suetonius, which I'll come back to in just a second. The other thing to know about Suetonius is that he doesn't relate this to the fire in Rome. So he doesn't say the Christians were blamed for setting fire to Rome, therefore Nero punished them. He just talks about punishment in a fairly sort of short abstract sense. Tacitus, on the other hand, does give us much more detail. So as Tacitus tells us in AD 64, there was a big fire in Rome. Um, 10 out of the 14 districts in Rome were kind of destroyed by fire. So it was, it was really brutal. Some people thought because after the fire, Nero implemented this huge building programme. Um, most of it was very good. It was very sensible. He was winding streets. He was using better building materials that were less flammable, that kind of thing. But he also took the opportunity to build up like a brilliant new palace for himself called the Domus Aurea, the Golden House. So because people saw him doing this, <laughs> um, Tacitus tells us, um, rumours started going around in Rome that Nero had started the fire himself so he could rebuild Rome as he wanted. And in order to stop those rumours, Tacitus says that Nero found this group of people in Rome that were already a bit unpopular, pinpointed them for the fire and punished them in a very severe and disproportionate way. So he had in the gardens of, of the palace that he was building, um, he opened them up and had people, sort of spectators, in to watch. And he crucified Christians at night and then lit them up as burning torches or had wild animals attack them. So it was a really horrific account, a really horrendous account of the punishment of these Christians. Um, and Tacitus, in fact, says it was so horrendous, even people who disliked the Christians still thought this punishment was disproportionate. They felt that Nero's cruelty was too much towards them. So not a particularly good starting point <laughs> for, for Nero in terms of, of Christian history. But why kind of historians find this a bit problematic, and there's been scholarship on this recently, um, a very good article into it, 2015 came out about this, was 
the fact that Tacitus is our first source for this. So we don't have anything contemporary and Tacitus is really the only one. Like I say, Suetonius mentions a little bit, but not very much. Um, and Tacitus gives us his full account. But then Cassius Dio doesn't mention it at all, the Christians at all. So it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult in evidence, in evidence wise. But that's the story. That's Tacitus's story. So Tacitus's story, as you said from there, it sounds like he uses the Christians as a scapegoat, as it were, for who started the great fire of Rome. And if this persecution did happen, if we believe Tacitus's story, or it happened to the extent that it did, were there any significant Christian figures who suffered in the persecution? Yes, yeah, so um, then we have a later tradition that emerges actually roughly contemporaneously with, with Tacitus, sort of early 2nd century BC, that one of the people caught up in the fire, in the, the punishments of the fire, was St Peter. The story went that St Peter, and, and this now we're switching to Christian tradition, so Tacitus doesn't talk about this at all, and, and the pagan historians don't, but early Christian writers start to put this together, that so Peter was in Rome during the fire and therefore that he was caught up in these punishments and was crucified on the site that we now have St Peter's Basilica. So um, those familiar with, with Rome will know uh, the beautiful, amazing St Peter's Basilica. The original version of that <laughs> was built on the site that Peter was supposed to have been crucified in, in Rome. The other slightly less straightforward Christian figure to be caught up in this is St Paul. So again, kind of when we get to later Christian writings, St Paul also gets subsumed into this. But actually, uh, Christian writers, even fairly early ones, were starting to differentiate between the stories of Peter and Paul. And, and Paul was arrested for inciting a riot, um, brought to Rome because he was a Roman citizen. So he had the right to be heard by the emperor if he wanted to be. So he asked to be taken to Caesar. This is according to Acts in the Bible. So um, this is what Acts tells us. So he was taken to Rome and then put in prison. Um, he was a Roman citizen, so he had the right to a trial and this sort of thing. And this wasn't caught up in the fire, but probably happened around the same sort of time. So if we think the, um, the fire was 64, the Christians are probably punished around about so early 65. And then we think around about 67 was when Paul died is sort of scholarly consensus at, at the moment so that it's it's all kind of fairly uh, similar in terms of time scale but it's not that St Paul was crucified as part of the fire you know narrative he is beheaded later on because of a different incident but it's still a, a you know one of the founders of the Christian church meeting his end under Nero. Well I guess it shows that Nero didn't have a very good relationship with the Christians then. Um, well. <laughs> actually, that was fascinating what you just said about Acts just there. Does Acts say the emperor in it? And can we infer from that that the emperor is Nero? They, they call him Caesar, yes. So when you say, you know, you're taken to Caesar, that's whomever the emperor is at that point, and that, that would have been Nero. So, um, And with the timeline as well, if you think of Christ died in about 31, 32, uh, somewhere around there. And then you have um, the narrative of St. Paul's conversion. And so if you kind of put the timeline together, you know, modern theologians and historians sort of, you know, have pieced that together in that way as well. Um, they've been on St. Peter in Rome scholarship recently, um, some brilliant scholarship um, coming out of Germany as well, that has, I think, quite conclusively or, or substantially proved that Peter never went to Rome and wasn't in Rome during that period. But Really, the, the reality of this is less important for how Nero ended up um, being looked at in Christian history, because, like I said before, all of these traditions were being kind of 
created and solidified later anyway in the second century. None of this is contemporary with, with Nero um, in terms of its history and literature. Fascinating. So let's go on to the topic of the Antichrist itself in the New Testament. First of all, whereabouts in the New Testament do we hear about the Antichrist? Right. So the word Antichrist in and of itself, so that word Antichrist is only actually used in one book of the New Testament, and that's the letters of John. So um, the the first and second um, letters of John, and they talk about either an Antichrist or Antichrists. So like the false prophets, basically. Um, that that are going to come about at the time of the end times and then uh, cause that division between good and evil where you can get then the final final judgment on earth. So that's the only place where that word antichrist is used. But we also have kind of antichrist figures, apocalyptic figures in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, where we have a man of lawlessness and a mystery of iniquity. And that is um, seen by early Christian um, commentators from you know, the second century onwards as being antichrist literature, if you like. They, they talk about the two together. And then we also have the first beast in the book of Revelation which is perhaps the most famous sort of antichrist figure, um, if you like, because Revelation is now a very widely read book. In antiquity, Revelation was very controversial. Um, it, it was deemed very difficult in terms of putting it into the canon because it was so, it's so difficult to understand. <laughs> it's a really uh, difficult book to read. And Eusebius, who was one of the um, very influential church fathers, didn't like Revelation. So um, it was canonised eventually in, in the fourth century, but um, it had a bit of a tricky relationship with some of the earliest um, Christian writers and some of the most influential Christian writers. But certainly since then and, and to now, the first beast in Revelation is very clearly um, you know, seen as a, an antichrist figure. So those are the key kind of parts of the Bible that are used from about the third century onwards to say Nero was the antichrist. So the one that comes up the least is the letters of John, then Paul's two Thessalonians, and then Revelation is the most popular by, by far. Yes. Yeah, so, so how have scholars tried to associate these creatures with Nero in the New Testament? So this is really interesting because on the one hand, you've got um, the biographies of Nero from people like Tacitus and Suetonius and Cassius Dio, who attributes so many kind of tyrannical ideas and, mo and motifs to Nero. So he's a murderer, he's a destructive in, in terms of, you know, perhaps burning Rome. Um, Suetonius blames him very firmly for burning Rome. He does think it's him. Um, he's, he's destructive, he's murderous, he's deceptive. Um, if you think of, of Nero in Tacitus and Suetonius, he's quite a theatrical emperor, but with being a theatrical person you're also lying a lot because no one can really understand what you're thinking or what you're doing and you're going to change on a whim you might say one thing but mean another thing those kind of attributes also fit very well with a, with with an antichrist and um, the very fact that he is pagan in inverted commas in that he followed you know traditional greco-roman religion is then for christianity a problem um, that's not unique to nero of course but when you kind of marry all of these things together the idea that he was a zealot um, you know, zealous about about pagan religion, which um, you know doesn't actually come through particularly in the sources, but you can you can kind of use it anyway. That he was destructive, that he murdered his family, that he murdered people in Rome. Um, you know, all of those things together fit very nicely with the idea of what an antichrist will be like from 
the man of lawlessness or revelation, the sort of destruction and the falseness, the false prophet of revelations, first beast, um, Nero was seen as, as fitting quite nicely with. But um, so there's that. But the other, the thing that I also find fascinating about what Christian writers from sort of the third to the fifth centuries do is that then they also take things that aren't necessarily in the New Testament and say, well, this is further evidence. So Nero was a sexual deviant or he, um, you know, those kinds of things. So he had lots of affairs with women and men and, you know, those kinds of attributes of him. And, and also his theatre, the fact that he liked to act on stage and he was a liar player and he was a chariot racer. Those things would have been controversial for their converted audience, people who grew up knowing these stories, these Roman stories who were perhaps new converts or, or uh, new in their family to Christianity. It works both ways. So he works very nicely as a, um, an antichrist because of the destructive elements, but they could also bring this in and say, well, you know this about Nero already. You know he's a sexual deviant. You know that he's a theatrical emperor. These are not things that people, are, you know, Roman elites are supposed to be. So they were quite clever, I think, and they used all of it to, to sort of bring together this, this idea about Nero. Forgive my ignorance, what are the qualities of this beast in the New Testament, this first beast? So the first beast is um, created, is the spawn of the devil, basically the devil figure in the dragon in, in Revelation. And he will appear at the time, the beast will appear at the time of the, um, of the end times, of the uh, you know, precursor to the apocalypse, as it were. And he will be a king and people will worship him and people will follow him because he's a false prophet. So the idea is that he will be a ruler and people won't realise necessarily, but then those who follow him, um, when we get to the time of, of the apocalypse and the re resurrection of Christ, the people who followed um, Nero who believe in the false prophet, continue to believe in the false prophet, will receive the mark of the beast, and the mark of the beast is 666. So that's the role that, that the first beast has in Revelation. Then eventually he will be destroyed and he will die in the lake of fire, be thrown into the lake of fire. And um, he also rides, sorry, lots of imagery here, rides on the Whore of Babylon. So in Revelation, um, you also have the Whore of Babylon, who's normally thought to kind of, you know, represent Rome and its decadence and that sort of thing. So that sort of marries on according to later writers there as well. But you would argue then that the early Christians, they didn't fear Nero returning from the dead, as it were, as this antichrist figure, as this beast. Yeah, so this might sound odd. <laughs> I understand that. It might sound odd that I don't think that Nero uh, would necessarily be something, someone that, you know, a lot of Christians feared in the first century because of what I've just told you about Tacitus's account and everything else. So bear with me. Basically. If we want to, if we want in the first century, so in, in he was um, emperor from 54 to 68, if we want to think that Christians in this period and in its immediate aftermath, so sort of, you know, the 70s-ish um, AD, um, that enough Christians across the Roman Empire, so if I, if I kind of go back to where we started, which is where Christian communities were, um, like I say, the majority of them are in, in the East and the um, letters that are being addressed that have these um, uh, antichrist figures in them, the Thessalonians, right, in Greece, and then you also have the seven churches of Asia Minor, so modern day Turkey, kind of that area. 
um, seven churches who are the addressees of Revelation. That's to whom John of Patmos addresses it. So we are talking about kind of understanding of, of Christians in the East. And the reason why I think it's difficult to say that John or Paul or whomever wrote these texts, because actually it's it's tricky in terms of who these people were and whether they were who they said they were, um, that sort of thing. Whoever wrote these texts wrote it with Nero specifically in mind that everybody should interpret these figures as Nero, or that Nero is the most even the most obvious person to interpret these figures as. I think is a little difficult because it means taking everything that someone like Tacitus or Suetonius says as exactly right. So as an exact representation of the historical figure of Nero, not only how he would have been thought of in Rome, but how he would have been thought of all the way across the other side of the empire in the East as well. And the reason why I find that difficult is because Nero was actually quite popular in the East. According to the non-literary, the archaeological evidence that we have, a statue was put up of him in the mid-2nd century AD in Trales, long after he was gone um, because you know clearly he still had a bit of popularity there um, historians talk about him thinking of fleeing to the east when he's you know realizes that his time in rome is coming to an end he's been declared a public enemy by the senate his first thought according to suetonius is oh i can go to egypt maybe you know i'll be allowed to go and be a prefect in egypt but everyone in rome has deserted him to such a point by that time i don't want to kind of come across as someone who's saying nero was a good guy and everyone just misunderstood him i think there's lots of complexities there and and it's difficult to sort of you know i don't want to seem like i'm whitewashing um nero but what i do want to pay more attention to and i think is worth paying attention to when it comes to understanding the antichrist problem is how different people in the roman empire would have seen nero differently and because we have these stories about anecdotes and rumors going around in rome we can't assume that that is what people in the east understood i know what the comeback to that is it's well, he killed Christians, surely that's enough. And I get that, I understand that, and I, I agree with that. But what I don't think we should do with that, with what he did to Christians in the aftermath of the fire, is interpret that as a persecution in the way we think of persecution. So these Christians were killed for setting fire to Rome. Yes, they were Christians, and that helped them be pinpointed for this. But we're not talking about religious persecution the way we might think of it now. And we're not talking about systematic persecution either. This was a discrete group of people who suffered horrifically, if Tacitus is to be believed, in Rome. But that doesn't necessarily mean that communities of Christians in the East would have expected that was coming their way. There were no edicts issued. This was not seen as something that was going to be empire-wide in terms of persecution. And groups in Rome were <laughs> kind of killed by different emperors all the time for various reasons. All I mean is I don't think that in this period, in the mid-first century, mid to late first century, in the east of the Roman Empire, we necessarily need to think about Nero in the way that we're told about him in Tacitus and Suetonius and Cassius Dio. And what I found when researching this topic is the way in which scholars have thought about Nero as the Antichrist before is by looking at Tacitus, Suetonius, Cassius Dio, finding correlations in the descriptions and then thinking about the Antichrist in Revelation and Paul's letters. And I just think it's a bit more complicated than that. Of course, of course. And actually keeping on the yeast and actually keeping on the topic of resurrection, 
Is it in, in the history? I can't remember which source it is, but after Nero's death, they say in the East, maybe in Parthia, that there are these pseudo-Neros, as it were. Absolutely, the false Neros. Uh, yeah, definitely. So these these come across all three of our sources, actually. So Suetonius mentions one, Tacitus mentions two. Um, there may have been three. We're not quite sure whether Suetonius is talking about the same one as, as um, Tacitus. But, um, and then also Cassius Dio later on mentions them um, as well. So this is something that, you know, is, is fairly consistent. So this is the idea that after, as I said, when Nero was kind of, you know, going through his death scene <laughs> in, in Rome, he thought, oh, maybe I could go over to Egypt and everything would be okay. We're then told by Tastus Suetonius and Cass well, uh, sorry, not Tastus, because we've lost that bit. We've lost his death in Tastus, unfortunately. But in Suetonius and Cassius Dio, we're told, no, Nero went to the villa of his freedmen. He um, heard kind of the Praetorian Guard coming and he had his freedmen, um, Epaphroditus, help to kill him. So he committed suicide with the help of the freedmen. Um, he then had a very lavish funeral. Um, his funeral was paid for by the state. Um, and he was, you know, not in secrecy, he was taken up, he was given a proper funeral, um, you know, and all of that. So none of these historians are in any doubt that he died. But what did happen was that rumours started coming to Rome in about the year after, so around about 69 AD, and then again probably in the early 80s as well, the two that, that we know of under the Emperor Titus, we think that may have been another um, version of this. But in the East, um, people had started to win supporters by saying that they were Nero. So like you said, someone in Parthia, um, which is the kind of empire that, that was on the east of the Roman Empire, that they were constantly fighting over territory in Armenia, that, that sort of thing under Nero, that they um, you know, came across into, into um, the Roman Empire saying that they were Nero, building up some support. And the idea was that they were going to then come and claim the, the throne in Rome. Um, this was dealt with very quickly by the Roman army. <laughs> the go a governor came across who was already in that area, came across, killed that person, body taken back to Rome, maybe just the head, it's not quite clear, but, but body, parts of body or body taken back to Rome, everyone said, oh yeah, it does look a bit like Nero. Um, and that's sort of, sort of the end of it. Um, so that, this is a, a, you know, extraordinary, well, it's an extraordinary story. It's not extraordinary in that this is the first time this had happened. It's the first time it had happened with an emperor. But um, earlier on, we'd had two members of, of the imperial family or people close to the imperial family. We've had people pretending to be them. So Agrippa, the son of um, Agrippa, the friend of Augustus. So um, Agrippa, the friend of Augustus, uh, married Augustus's daughter, Julia. They had children. The last of those children who actually was born after Agrippa's death was named Agrippa Posthumus. Um, when Agrippa Posthumus died, a slave pretended that Agrippa Posthumus was still alive and pretended to be him. Um, and we have another character called Drusus where there's a, a sort of similar misunderstanding or someone, you know, similar pretender. So Nero is not the first, but he is the first emperor to, to have this um, happen to him. But in a way, that's used also by some of our sources as a testimony to how popular Nero still was in the East. That after his death, he could use his name and people would follow you. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're fascinating stories. I mean, I, I brought it up mainly because this, once you kind of keep on this idea, the resurrection idea of the Antichrist in the Bible, could this possibly be a historical basis on which later Christians pounce on, they use to try and further affirm their belief that he is going to come back, as it were. 
Yes, absolutely. You're, you're dead on <laughs> there. That's exactly what they do. This is a, a, another way in which um, Nero's kind of biography is, is, is used. And obviously, um, the real Nero had no idea about this, but, um, you know, the way, his, uh, the way his story is told. So this story then gets distorted. So in our text, in our historical text, Tacitus' Antonius and Cassius Dio, like I say, Nero has a funeral. No one is in actual doubt that he's died everyone's quite clear on that these pretenders appear people follow them because they want to help overthrow Rome maybe something like that but then you know killed quickly done fine everything goes back to normal what happens in later Christian sources Christian histories and uh, homilies as well so kind of sermons that are preached is that becomes a story of Nero dying and being resurrected so not that he didn't die, which is what these stories say. He didn't die, he fled to the east, um, you know, and, and was there. That's what people in Asia said they believed when they were following him. Uh, people in Rome, he was already dead, you know, that's fine. Those two things sort of get conflated. And there's an idea that he, he's died, he's been resurrected, he's come back, as is told in, you know, the apocalypse, but also as mirrors, um, you know, Christ, the Christ story. So the expectation of a resurrection. So, yeah, those things kind of match up very nicely to then give you a way of understanding it. Um, there are a few different interpretations, actually, because um, that's one. So Nero died and will come back at the time of the apocalypse in order to carry out his last role as the false prophet. Um, another um, source, named, another historian named Lactantius, says that Nero didn't die, but was spirited off to the heaven to, well, actually come down maybe, but was taken away. No, uh, he was taken off. Um, this is all part of the divine plan. So he was taken off and he is going to be held somewhere until the time of the apocalypse until the end time so there is some variations going on with what the story is incidentally Lactantius doesn't believe it he thinks it's ridiculous <laughs> but um, others uh, you know other other people believe it and he says it's a very popular idea at his time but uh, certainly yeah those stories get manipulated in a few different ways um, sometimes he dies and he comes back other times he goes away and is being held somewhere and will come back other times he goes to the east amasses followers and somehow gains some supernatural strength and comes back straight away so there are a few different versions that start to appear like i say in in the later centuries a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ah... 
And just before we really go into these later centuries and when this Antichrist myth is really invented, you mentioned the number 666 earlier. What is the supposed link between Nero and this number? Um, numerology, the idea that numbers can, can be used to stand in for letters is quite a common one in antiquity. We see it um, in Pompeian graffiti, you know, there are examples of it. I love a girl whose number is, I forgot what the number is now, but a number, you know, is a way of disguising her name, that kind of thing. So it's used fairly straightforwardly or, or regularly. Actually, one of the things is it's not particularly straightforward <laughs> because, of course, um, you know, if you're not very clear about who you mean, then there are lots of different ways that this can be interpreted. So the way that Nero is seen to be tied to 666 is if you convert his name, Nero Caesar, to Neron Kaiser um, and then convert that to Hebrew, the letters in Hebrew add up to 666. So that's one way in which it can be it can be done. Um, the slight problem then is also, um, and this may be more or less familiar to, to you and your listeners, but there was a change in the manuscript at some point, we think probably early second century, where 666 was changed to 616. I don't know if you come across that variation, that sometimes it's, it's the number of the beast is 616 and not 666. And that can also be used to, to spell Nero if you translate it to Greek instead of Hebrew. So there are different ways, but then you also get later on um, in another source um, in a Donatist text from the early fifth century named the Liber Genealogus. What they decide to do is put up Antichristus in Latin, convert that to numbers. So A is one, etc. Antichristus in Latin, and then times that by the number of letters in Nero's name, but only using Nero. So not Nero Caesar, but just, and then that will give you 616. And then other people say 666 is actually a reference to light and not to Nero and someone who thinks of themselves as light. So it's, it's very complicated. <laughs> in, well, by which I mean, they don't agree in terms of how to get to this. And you could also use similar kind of manipulations to make Julius Caesar be 666 or Caligula be 666 or more in more recent history Mussolini 666 that was a very common one in the context of the post-war period so there's lots of ways and in the middle ages and then the um and then as a result of the reformation as well the pope was often 666 so an unsuccessful pope um in the catholic tradition or then with the reformation to try and to to talk about kind of the pope as an antichrist there's ways that, that that could work as well so it's been different in in different periods but certainly Nero is is somewhat implicated in that early on it's interesting how that number is associated with several figures throughout history not just one as it were so let's go on to the inventing well will you believe the inventing of the Nero antichrist link in the third century is it the third century yeah, so mid third century, um, probably. So um, uh, in this period, we get a poet named Commodian, who has sometimes been um, dated to the fifth century, but I think he was probably third because of, of um, the way that he's interpreting this particular story um, sort of seems to fit to me. But but even if, if he is fifth century, there's another um, person that we can firmly date to the to the third century um, called um, Victorinus, Victorinus of, of Petau or Batovia. And he is actually writing the first commentary of Revelation. So um, if we think Revelation was maybe written, again, this date is very contested. So late first century, maybe early second century, but, but somewhere around that sort of time frame. 
in the mid-third century we get our first commentator focusing particularly you know in detail on the text so Commodian going back to Commodian for a second writes a poem a, a very long poem in which he talks about apocalyptic scenarios and he really channels revelation. So he's sort of putting revelation into a poetic context and he's expanding in some ways on what it says and what it doesn't say and and that sort of thing. And the thing is, Nero's name isn't in Revelation. Caesar isn't in Revelation, like we talked about it being in Acts. There is no, you know, it's not, not that straightforward. But what Commodian does is he puts Nero into his poem as that sort of character. So he talks about Nero, the one who punished Peter and Paul in in Rome. Um, He will come back and return as the Antichrist, as as the first beast in in Revelation. Excuse me. So then he goes on to kind of furnish his poem with other motifs from Revelation and also other returning figures, um, Enoch and Elijah, who are you know, spirited away in in their story are, are, are thought to come back and uh, and all sorts of, of things like that. So he's really interpreting this in a poetic context. Victorinus is a little bit more straightforward, thankfully. Um, he is going through the chapters of Revelation and when he comes to the bit with the beast and the beast being wounded and, um, you know, those sorts of things, he says, well, this is Nero. That's done. It's Nero. We're fine. Let's move on. Um, he doesn't, when he gets to 666, he's one of the ones that starts to talk about this as being light, um, about uh, light and leadership. He doesn't talk about Nero in that context, but he does say kind of the first beast is, is, is Nero. So that's our first kind of bit where this is named. This is like, right, we have an Antichrist figure in the Bible. This is Nero. That's the first time we really get that in any sort of straightforward way. So that's the the kind of start of it. And clearly it took off because um, the character I mentioned before, Lactantius, um, writing in the sort of early fourth century, late third, early fourth century, talks about how popular this has become. This idea has become many believe, he said. As he says, many crazed people believe, but <laughs> the delirium, but many believe that this is this is Nero um, and then this sort of carries on in in um, some you know texts that we have um, John Chrysostom who is um, you know seen as quite a an important Christian um, preacher and bishop talks about this as well in relation to Paul in particular so when he's interpreting Paul's two Thessalonians for his congregation but also for a friend of his who writes to him um, a woman actually Algazia writes to him and says what do you make of this he says well it is Nero the man of lawlessness is Nero and then we sort of come to the fifth century and um, Augustine writing in his City of God says we could think of you know people have thought of this as Nero but this is wrong you know it isn't Nero I think more widely this is the Roman Empire is how he interprets Paul so and that I sort of see as a bit of a shift because we do get some references to him Nero as the Antichrist after that including by one of Augustine's followers Orosius and another one but Augustine not buying into it is maybe a little bit of a um, of, a, of a sea change for, for that but we, we do have sort of two and a half centuries really where this is quite a, a um, you know popular idea and is really making the rounds in the east and the west of the empire as um, a way of interpreting um, Paul's two Thessalonians and um, Revelation and also John's letters um, a bit is smattered around here and there as well. It's quite interesting if it was popular in the Eastern Mediterranean compared to what you were saying earlier when just after Nero's death he was seen as actually being very popular. 
Yeah, there are, there are fewer in the East than the West, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> um, however, that, I don't think that's necessarily because Nero is popular, because by this point, um, he's clearly, that's clearly been, been lost to some extent, because Cassius Dio, whom I mentioned earlier, that, that historian, that Roman pagan historian, writing at the end of the second century, beginning of the third century, writes a horrific count of Nero. It's ri- I mean, he is a tyrant, kind of, doesn't mention the Christians, <laughs> but in every other way, he is a sort of canonical, sort of tyrant par excellence. So um, even though Nero is still popular in the East, you know, in the aftermath of his death and then in like I say in the second century we have evidence of this as well Cassius Dio seems to maybe he's railing against it I think I would argue he's railing against that popularity to some extent he doesn't want Nero to be seen as popular but we have got kind of a a different idea Nero has become more of a canonical tyrant by this this point um because he's at the end of a dynasty because he is the last of the Julio-Claudians if you bring down the dynasty it's not necessarily going to be a good thing for you in the history books. Think of Domitian, think of Commodus um, as well. They're not normally seen as particularly good emperors um, in, in later, later periods once the tradition starts to settle. But in the first century, we, you know, while we don't have any contemporary accounts, we do have a historian named Josephus telling us they were good accounts and they were bad accounts. You know, there was this mixed range of things. Um, it's just that by later periods, it's the bad ones that kind of became the favourite ones and, and survived. So over those three centuries, as you were, before Augustine, it's as if this this association is invented and it develops, it gets more popular and more popular and more popular. I find it also quite astonishing when we consider those three centuries, when we consider some of the emperors like Diocletian, Decius, I think, they're all, and they're persecuting the Christians, but it is Nero who is the one that they portray as the Antichrist. Yeah, and this, again, is fascinating. This, I think, is because you have... Nero is the first and this is so important and as I was saying before in terms of what actually happened in the first century by the third century that doesn't matter this has become persecution this has become the first persecution of the Christians and that becomes incredibly powerful so when Orosius who uh, was one of um, Augustine's followers when Orosius writes his um his universal history, so like a potted history of everything that happened from Adam and Eve through to his own time sort of thing. He talks about Nero as the first persecutor of the Christians. Then he talks about Domitian as the second persecutor of the Christians, the first after Nero. And then he relates every single person to their number and how, what number they are after Nero. So Decius the 10th or Diocletian the 10th, I forget, but the ninth after Nero. So all of this goes through in relation to Nero. So that idea of him being the first is really important because also then the idea, um, there's a theological concept Um, called millennialism which is particularly influential to Victorinus which is why I think this kind of emerges in the third century really actually millennialism um, dictates that the last will mirror the first there's this sort of reciprocal relationship so I think that's why despite the fact you have Decius like you say that is the first systematic persecution that is you know horrific and then you have Diocletian at the end of the third century uh, as well beginning of the fourth you know in the east in particular mass widespread persecution of Christians these still aren't seen in in the same apocalyptic role as Nero because Nero started it for these historians and commentators. 
Gotcha. So because he's the first, he's the one. Mm. He's, as it were, he's the end of his Judeo-Claudian dynasty, but he's the start of the Christian persecution dynasty. Absolutely. We're very well put. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so going on from the invention, going on from those three centuries, you mentioned at the start how this idea is revived in, is it the 17th and the 18th centuries? Um, well, you see kind of, you do see smatterings of it in, in um, kind of medieval history and, and, and later on. There are, um, you know, there are commentators on Revelation who will still kind of talk about Nero, but nothing new happens with it. It's not developed in the way that it's really being developed, I think, in, in the third to fifth centuries. Um, where it really comes back to being developed and fleshed out properly again is actually the 19th century so in the 19th century in England but also there's a sort of crisis of Catholicism there's a pope that's quite quite controversial um Pope Pius um and we've also got um in in England as well in particular the rise of um what's called a papal aggression movement from about the 1850s so um we see a lot of pamphlets and and popular literature which start again to really talk about the idea of catholicism being the inheritor of paganism the catholic altar is is the pagan altar that that sort of association and how these are you know how catholicism is is not the form of christianity you should be following it should be protestantism or anglicanism as it was here um but also in this period to add to that context or to make this kind of you know more prescient um we have the sort of risings in england of a anglo-catholic movement so this is what's known as the oxford movement um so people like john henry newman um and edward pusey and um and, and a few others um so oxford dons essentially who who start to write about why high anglicanism by by high anglicanism i mean something that is more uh, perhaps ritualistic than liberal evangelicism that is the, the sort of counterpoint to, to, to that um, they start to write about the merits of high anglicanism and you know and, and why this this should be practiced and why christianity should be practiced in these ways but what actually they end up doing um john henry newman of course very famously becomes a cardinal is convert to catholicism so we get some fairly prominent at this stage um, Anglo-Catholics who talk about the ritual of Roman Catholicism and see the value in that. And alongside this or in this environment, then we start to get the revival of the Nero Antichrist idea, because if you're fighting against the papal Antichrist, what you can do is say, uh, no, look at your history books, go back to your Lactantius, go back to your Augustine, go back to these people. Who are they saying is, is the Antichrist? Oh, it's Nero. Even if Augustine didn't believe it, he still says, you know, in the text, Nero is in there. So that's enough. Um, so Nero provides a very good alternative, a very, you know, a historically solid alternative in the context of this movement, in the context of Anglo-Catholicism and the Oxford movement um, in particular. Um, but it's actually a French um, intellectual and, and philosopher who fleshes this out properly again for the first time um, since late antiquity, since, you know, the 5th, 6th century. And that's Ernest Renan. So he wrote a seven-volume history of Christianity, including a, a, a very controversial life of, of Jesus as well. Um, but the fourth volume of his history of Christianity is called The Antichrist, and it is entirely about Nero, entirely. So again, he is very clear that the first beast of Revelation, that is Nero. And we start to get 
in this period a confusion or a conflation actually between the idea that Nero will return as the Antichrist, which is what um, which is what is being said in late antiquity, Nero will return at the time of the apocalypse to, to bring forward um, the end times. That gets conflated with Nero's reign being the reign of an Antichrist. So it gets put back into this sort of first century context almost. And again, the persecution is so important in this. And this particular idea is fleshed out even more in a two volume historical novel by a man named Frederick William Barry, who was Dean of Canterbury, um, who was actually better known for writing um, children's books. <laughs> um, Eric Little by Little is, is a very famous one. But he wrote a two volume historical novel about Nero called Darkness and Dawn or Scenes of the Days of Nero, which was set in Nero's reign, but was the apocalypse. And in his story, he has um, famous kind of victims of Nero from the historical tradition. So Nero is, is supposed to have killed his stepbrother Britannicus and um, caused the death of his wife Octavia. She commits suicide because of um, her treatment by Nero. In Barra's Darkness and Dawn, these people become Christians. He has Britannicus and Octavia convert to Christianity um, and the person that is helping to convert them is John who wrote Revelation. So he mixes all of these things out. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant novel. It has footnotes. It's a novel with footnotes. <laughs> but he mixes all of these things together and mixes them all off to, to create this, this historical novel, which is very popular in and of itself, but is even more popular because it then forms the basis. His novel is where Wilson Barrett gets the idea to write The Sign of the Cross, the play The Sign of the Cross, and a Polish writer named Heinrich Sienkiewicz gets the idea to write Quo Vadis. And both of these novels that they write based on Barra's Darkness at Dawn are going to become big hits in the early film industry. So um, Charles Lawton stars in The Sign of the Cross, big name, um, you know, Nero, and Peter Ustinov, of course, in the canonical kind of 1951 of version of, of Quo Yeah, um, is right there. So, so these become really popular. The, the play and the novel, of course, are quite popular, but the films are, you know, they're, they're big Hollywood spectacles. Think of, you know, Quo Vadis was around the same sort of time as things like Cleopatra and, and you know, that sort of thing. So the big Hollywood Roman epic spectacles, uh, Nero and the Christian story are in those. It's, he's there. So it's a really uh, darkness and dawn has a lot to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating to say how it's, as it were, it survived into the 20th century with Quo Vadis, as you say, now through the film industry. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So so the timing is, is brilliant. Um, you know, not for Nero, but for a historian, me, I like looking at it. <laughs> the timing is, is, is brilliant because you do get that the revival in the 19th century allows this then to go into the, you know, the popular literature and popular, um, uh, popular categories of entertainment. And one of the things about Quo Vadis, so in the, in the book, in Sienkiewicz's book, um, Nero is the Antichrist. He's spoken of as the Antichrist. He's called the beast. Revelation is, is in there. Peter is in there. And he, he really does have that very clear Antichrist label in in the book that falls out a bit in the famous version of the film in the 1950s version of the film Nero is still dangerous he's unpredictable but he's also quite easily led 
and you know a bit effeminate and, and other attributes that normally get put onto Nero away from the sort of antichrist idea but even then when they were trying to sort of do a different kind of Nero for Quo Vadis in the opening voiceover of the film um, as they're kind of introducing the film and you've got the Roman army being um, you know the, the main character Marcus Vinicius is leading the Roman army back into Rome the opening voiceover says this is in the reign of the antichrist known as Nero so it's, it's there, you're introducing the idea from the very beginning, but then the film gets to play on the lighter side of Nero to, to a big extent. But then, of course, it, it ends with Christians in an arena being eaten by lions. And that, you know, that, that very famous um, scene of the film, all, almost eaten by lions for, for some of them, because, uh, you know, they're rescued. But uh, and then the inevitable kind of death of Nero. But it is, you know, that that idea is is still informing it, even if it's not leading those those film representations. Indeed, indeed. And I guess to sum up, can we say that all this derives ultimately from Commodian in the third century getting a bit ahead of himself and assigning <laughs> Nero to the revelations in the beast? Yes, absolutely. So Commodian and Victorinus, perhaps it's all their fault. Um, those are the earliest ones we have, whether it, it, it happened before that. Um, there, are, there are hints of it before that in um, uh, slightly problematic oracle texts. So um, the Sibylline oracles talk about, um, they, again, they never name Nero, but they talk about an emperor who is more easily identifiable as Nero because they say that he you know, liked to act on stage and that kind of thing, the sort of ideas that aren't in Revelation. Um, and that he is going to come back and be a destructive force, that sort of thing. But they, it's not quite the same because he's not dying and resurrected or any of those sorts of things. And these are probably sort of second century. So when those ideas are starting to be formed anyway. So, um, yeah, certainly it's all Commodian's fault with perhaps a little bit of blame pointed towards the Sibylline Oracle's way as well. <laughs> well, Commodian's got a lot of money for the Hollywood film industry, though. So good <laughs> for him. Absolutely. Shushma, that was fantastic. Uh, your book is called the nero antichrist founding and fashioning a paradigm there you go <laughs> shushma thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so much for having me it's been brilliant thank you deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.